A little bit about me, I was baptized in a Baptist church when I was eight years old and then got saved when I was 42. Um, so quite a while understanding the facts of the gospel, embracing the facts of the gospel, and would defend the gospel even as I lived uh, in, in, in total ungodliness. Uh, going through some of the similar uh, walks that John had as a, as a university college athlete and all that, and then went into business, and, and I was uh, in a, a manufacturing electronics for about 20 years until 1998 when I got saved, and then uh, a little bit later being convicted of just leaving uh, my business and, and everything and going out to Master Seminary to be equipped. Um, not knowing why, but just knowing I needed to do something different. And I wasn't just looking for a career change because the company I was in was doing absolutely fabulous and, and uh, it was a great uh, uh, career position that I had. I was a CEO of a company that uh, made electronics in California. Uh, but I began to see very clearly that it's not about this life and it's not about what's going on. It's about serving the Lord of the universe and understanding how I can be used by him and how to glorify him and realize that I was totally ignorant when it came to the things of the word of God and I was hungry for it every Sunday and I'd come in and I'd understand a little bit about what the pastor said and I'd walk out with all kinds of questions and found it difficult to get them answered but he was a great discipler and took time with me but after a bit it became very clear to me that I needed to go leave that position and just go get equipped and I was directed to go to the master's seminary, as Providence would have it, not even knowing who John MacArthur was. I had no idea. Matter of fact, my first Sunday there, sitting about in the middle section, you know, so he's way up there. And as he got up there a couple of times, I kept saying, John MacArthur's not here today. Because my only picture of John MacArthur was on a 1969 set of tapes called God, Satan, and the Angels. And I'm looking for John MacArthur. I don't see him anywhere. And then eventually I looked real careful and I said, oh, that must be his dad. <laughs> that must be some kind of Father's Day thing here. I realized, oh, that's John MacArthur. <clears throat> so, yeah. so I was a little bit naive and blind when I went in there and, and uh, went uh, to Master's Seminary in 2000, got out in 2002. And as the Lord would have it, he opened all kinds of doors and just essentially pushed us to South Africa. And that leads me to, <clears throat> excuse me, that leads me just to a question that people have asked me, which is, how did you receive your call? I mean, how do you, how do you receive your call? How did you know you're called by God to go into missions? And I will help you with that, just to let you understand that that, that really is the simple question, and that's not the real question. I mean, how did I know I was going to go into missions? I didn't. So how do you know you're called to be a missionary and all that kind of stuff? You won't. Because your question is related to, how did you know you're supposed to go to Africa? Well, I had no idea. Believe me, my family took a vote. It was one to five. Guess who the one was? And we still went to Africa. Africa was not on my radar. It was not where I wanted to go. But going through Master Seminary, never really having preached... And now you're coming through with the books because I went through at a pretty fast rate. So I got through not knowing what I'm going to do and 
the terror of saying, I got a candidate at churches, but I don't have any sermons. What, do I gonna, what am I going to do? I said, well, it looks like the easier course would be missions because you can just go show up there. And so I decided to try that. Grace, however, doesn't work that way. So they put me at the end of the queue, which was like number 327, get over back there behind all those other guys. And I said, okay. And that wasn't shutting the door. That was just making it like, how bad do you want to do this? So I just kept walking and going to the meetings and all of that kind of stuff. And after a short mission trip to South Africa, one of those short-term deals, Providence would have it. One of the missionaries on the field left. They had an opening and they needed somebody and they had met Carol and I and decided we want them because we're a little bit older and had a family. And so the Nationals called Grace and said, can the Beakleys come? And of course that took us from number 327 to next on deck. And uh, so we went and they shot us out to South Africa. It was that quick. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't pursue all this stuff because it wasn't on my heart. It was God's will. And I just, I don't know what God's will is for my life, but that's what God's will was, and he put us in Africa. So that's the short answer of how we were called into missions. But that's not the real question. That is not the real question. Because most people misunderstand that the idea of calling into missions involves a geographic location or uh, an unreached people group or some difficult kind of situation and you pack up and traverse around the globe and that's what you do that is not the question that is that is where i am just like cornerstone church is here and there's churches in the valley and there's churches in santa clea that's where they are there are churches elsewhere in america that's where they are there's churches in south africa that's where they are that's geography that's just circumstances that bring you to that geography but a mission really is an act Called into mission is an act. It's an objective with certain responsibilities by its participants, certain goals, certain performance measurements. Specifically, I want you to know, we'll see here, that all Christians are called into what we would call biblical mission. All Christians. Jesus really kind of proclaimed this when he was going into the temple, Luke chapter 19 verse 40 he says this when the people were the Pharisees were admonishing him for his disciples saying hail son of David the Messiah coming into the into the temple he's going to come into the in Jerusalem and they said make your disciples be quiet and Jesus said this he says if they keep quiet then these stones will cry out God will make missionaries out of stones if the disciples are quiet Because that's what people who follow Christ do. They cry out, this is who Christ is. He says again in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 to 33, he says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. You see, all believers are called to this mission to proclaim Christ. When you're given new life, new sight to see, that's what you do. You proclaim Christ and leads people to Christ. And that, it doesn't mean you have to take them into salvation. It means you pointing all the time, all the way to Christ. If you think about it, that's what the angels did. Every time they came and spoke to somebody, they were pointing that person 
to Christ, especially the angel Gabriel, whose name means strong man of God. And everywhere Gabriel is used in the New Testament and the Old Testament, he's talking about Christ. You can look it up. Just find everywhere Gabriel speaks, it's about Christ. He's the one who points people there to Christ. He's an angel. Well, that's what he does. That's what those who are of God do. And it gives them great joy. Jesus said to his disciples, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. He wants our joy to be full. And that's how our joy is full. We point people to Christ. Regardless of what they do, we're always looking to Christ. So every Christian is called to a specific mission involving Christ. And the objective is what? To maximize our joy. And we'd love others to have that same joy. So I'm going to ask you a question this morning. It's not for you to ask me the question, Dave. How do you know you were called? How do you know you were called into mission? That's not the question. The question is for me to ask you, how do you know that you're called? That's what I'm going to ask you this morning. How do you know? And with that, out of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 13, that's where we are this morning. We're going to take a look at three specific questions that you can ask yourself to talk about whether you're called by God into mission. But this is not really a test to do that. It's, this is something to say, what am I looking for here? Out of the life of the prophet Isaiah, actually the calling of the prophet Isaiah in this Old Testament passage. I think what you're going to see here, specifically, is something that relates to the heart of God and does that burn inside you is that there so this is really a a passage through the life of Isaiah that we're going to see here what he experiences in his calling for a very specific purpose just take a look and, and look at this text and say do these principles are are these principles active in my life Do they come to the fore as they did with Isaiah? And it's with that, then you can challenge yourself and say, am I focused on these areas? Because don't focus on calling like, should I go somewhere? Should I do something? Focus here, right here, as Isaiah was challenged as well. I will take a look at it in Isaiah chapter 6. Verses 1 to 13, we'll read the entire chapter because we are going to spend time in the back half of the chapter, which is where everybody stays away from. And that's actually where we're going to be going this morning. Most people, just as I've just kind of given you the preview here, like to go up to chapter 6, verses 1 to 8 and stop there and let's take an offering. But we're going to go all the way to verse 13 and deal with something that people really don't like to deal with, which is one of the most difficult sermons probably found in scripture that's ever been preached as well. So if you've got your Bibles there, Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 to 13, let's take a look at this. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, Each having six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And he called out 
one to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears full, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he said, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will be again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the reading of the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, not just your goodness, your holiness, your otherliness to us, but your gracious patience that you have with us. waiting to catch us so that you can show us a glimpse of your glory as you have done here with the prophet Isaiah that transformed him as a man because of what he saw and what he heard. And you do that, Lord, to us through your word and by your Holy Spirit that mixes the hearing of your words with faith ignited by the power of the Holy Spirit who he gives us eyes to see. Lord, that is what we beg you for this morning. By your Holy Spirit, make these words come alive to us, this picture of who you are and who we are and our very position as children of God. To marvel at the grace you have given to take us from the depths of sin where we have been, but not just sin, but blind, hopeless and rebellious, and yet you've taken that and substituted our judgment for the righteousness of your very Son so that we would become children of God to sit at the table with him. Treated not as now just righteous beings, treated not as if we were back in the Garden of Eden, but treated as if we are family and children. Lord, that is the message that you give us through your word. This is the picture that you give to us, how we can come from being so low to up so high. So, Father, impress upon that through these words 
I pray for clarity, Lord, that you would guide your servant this morning, that the meaning of this text would come true to us so that your spirit would ignite it with fire, that we would, in bringing the circumstances of our week, our days behind us into this very church, each person with different circumstances, hearing the same meaning, the same words ignited by faith that you work in our very lives. We pray for that this morning and commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we start to unpack this passage here, Isaiah chapter 6, I just want to answer a simple question for you before we move into the text, and that is why would the call of Isaiah be found in chapter 6? Kind of a simple question, but I think it's very helpful for us to understand this because of the context in chapters 1 to 5. But why is Isaiah 6, the call here found in in chapter 6 rather than chapter 1, verse 1, after a brief introduction of the kings, and then give us Isaiah like it does in the prophet Jeremiah or the prophet Ezekiel? We find out about this. And, And that is because there has been a king, Uzziah, who has lived 52 years and has had an amazing career. Second Chronicles 26 gives a great picture of King Uzziah, of 52 years of faithfulness to the Lord, someone who has actually upheld the covenant made with Moses, Deuteronomy 28, that talks about following the ways of Yahweh and his law of, and, and, and getting the people to obey. He was a great... Uh, farmer, he understood agriculture, he loved the soil, and he was a great military man. He actually had weapons of mass destruction. You can find it right there in Second Chronicles 26. It talks about he invented engines of war that could shoot many arrows at the same time. A feared king. And you find it interesting also that during this time, no big countries were coming after them. I mean, they were a ripe plum to be picked with lots of wealth and gold and all of that. And they were small in the Assyrian campaign and the Babylonian campaign. They were all coming, but they they stayed away from the Middle East right there. God protected them. And that was the situation. But chapters 1 to 5 indicate the hearts of the people were otherwise. They were otherwise. And so in chapters 1 through Five, we see how the people are referred to as, as just being completely rebellious. I just read you a couple of verses here in, in verse 2 of chapter 1 as it starts off. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Even the ox and the donkey know who feeds them. Israel doesn't know any of that. So we've seen the people in their hearts are turning and have turned and have gone down into wickedness. Wickedness not necessarily into Baal worship, but but into total independence from God. Thus, the need for a prophet because a good king is not enough. A good king will not turn the nation protection and getting blessings from God is not enough. And so there's a need for a prophet 
And he comes at a most unusual time. And we see it in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah is concerned. He's, he's radically concerned for what's going on. There's, there's some major issues happening here in the year of King Uzziah's death. When Isaiah is about to see something from the Lord who says, Isaiah, you need, to, you need to actually be transformed to be of any use to me. King Uzziah had 52 years of dominance in the area. So obviously if he dies, the question is, oh no, the year of good governance is over. And now we're going to go downhill. So there's a fear of who's going to take his place, what's going to happen. But there's another factor. In the last 10 years of Uzziah's life, he died a leper. A leper. You say, oh, that was too bad. No, that's not too bad. Leprosy is the one disease in the Bible that's not considered a disease. It's a curse by God. Why? Because the only way you can be cured of leprosy is to go to the priest to have them see if the leprosy is gone. And the, and the words that are always used on leprosy in Leviticus, it talks about when God puts a mark of leprosy on either a person or a building, God actually brings the leprosy. And God is the only one who can remove the leprosy. There's no cure. So a leper is a, considered to be a curse by God. And Uzziah was struck with leprosy because he tried to burn incense in the temple. So he tried to burn incense in the temple on his own and was kicked out once the leprosy broke out in his forehead and he spent the last 10 years a leper. So now I've got good King Uzziah who has now gone away and turned away from God the last 10 years. Now what are we going to do? Not only is our good king gone, but he went bad. And now, oh my, the wrath of God is coming and everything is going to be torn apart. So Isaiah is in a, in a place of, of just fear. Not unlike what I see when I'm in South Africa. One thing nice about being, I guess, American when I'm in South Africa, I don't read the newspapers there because I don't understand the local news, what's going on. So even though, believe me, it is a lot worse than what you people might feel here today <laughs> and what's happening here today, it's a lot worse over there. I just don't know about it, so it seems like it's pretty good <laughs> to me. I don't have a problem with it when they basically block off the in and out of the highways into a particular town and, and group of towns so that nobody can get in and out. And they block off all food and all medical supplies because they're upset at a local issue on who controls the you know, electricity and water and all that kind of stuff. And they're upset at which tribe is over you know, the political positions. So they just, we're going to starve everybody and we're going to burn the schools. And so they do, they burn all the kids' schools. It's been that way for about two months. But, you know, ignorance is bliss a little bit, you know, when you're over there. But you can see that there. You can see that here. People are upset. Things are happening. What are we going to do? Ah! This is where Isaiah was. My country, my leadership, it's all just, as we say, dirmakar. It is just upside down and around. That's the situation we find ourselves in here in verse 1. All packed up into that year of King Uzziah died. Okay? I, think I felt important that we had to get that picture in of saying, Isaiah is shaking, reading the version of Haaretz newspaper, you know, back then, 700 BC. What's happened again today? What's going on now? What's happening with temple worship? What's happening with people? Oh, King Uzziah is dead. What's, what's going on? And he's highly concerned. 
And what we're going to find here, I will just say, as we get to it, we're going to find it in verse 5. This first question is this, and we'll build up to it here. Is, are you marked by a life of confession? Confession. We're going to find that here. If you know you're called, called by God, how is confession in your life? Do you have a life of confession? I'm going to show you. You take a look at this. You see, in the year of King Uzziah's death, what did Uzziah see? Or what did uh, Isaiah see? He saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, lofty and exalted. The train of his robe was filling the temple. This gives an idea of two pictures of God right here. It's what we call transcendence and imminence, two theological words. Transcendent, meaning high and lifted up, up there. In Africa, there are no atheists in Africa. Africans have no problem believing in God, and they laugh and ridicule the ideas of evolution. They understand Modimo. Modimo is there. He's there, but he's far. Nobody can ever get to Modimo. Modimo's up there, and he's God, and so we need mediators. That was, that's, the Afri- Afri- that's the issue with African religion and African traditional religion is they have their own mediators called the ancestors. And the ancestors mediate between man and God. They understand about transcendence. High and lifted up. We all know about God. We talk about God. When people get serious and their life is crashing in and they talk about the supernatural is coming, nobody has a question that God is bigger than me. And that's what we see here. High and lifted up, transcendent. But there's something also here that we see, and it's used three times in the verses of 1, 2, 4 here, and that's the word filled or filling. His robe is filling the temple. Verse 3, the whole earth is full of his glory. And verse 4, the temple was filling with smoke. There's this, the, the word filling is right there. That means imminent, which means God is right here with you. He is sitting next to you even now this morning. God is in and around us. He is omnipresent. If there's a doctrine that you should embrace, a doctrine that makes us different, a doctrine that, that will get you through, it's the doctrine of omnipresence. Because if you understand that God is with you, which is what the word Emmanuel means, God with us. You can go anywhere. You can go anywhere. I mean, I'll tell you, I... I Go to Africa, I'll take John with me anywhere. <laughs> not a problem. I feel safe. It's not a big deal. See, once you know you've got something there. And he sees both of these. But often it's, it's the idea of omnipresence that actually irritates people and drives fear in those nominal or hypocritical believers. Why? Because that's the last thing I want is God to be here seeing what I'm doing and being with me in all this. Because that's because we see God differently in a non-confessional way. And it is very fearful. And so he sees this picture of a transcendent and imminent God right here. But now as he sees this picture, he sees an incredible sight. One that we read and we like to talk about. 
Seraphim stood above him, verse 2, each, each having six wings. Two, he covered his face. Two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And we meditate on that verse, and we come up with all kinds of, of, of beliefs in wingology. And we like to talk about wings. And we like to talk about wings covering this and covering that. And I'll just tell you, that's not the point. I can tell you about it, but that's not the point. Seraphim are angels that have six wings. That's what sets them apart. But it's not the only thing that sets them apart. Seraphims means burning ones. They're on fire. Words only used here and in Ezekiel. It's actually the same Hebrew word used for the fiery serpents that come down and bite the people. Found in the book of Numbers. Snakes on fire. Only they're not snakes. Seraphim are the angels on fire. And they're flying around, and they're on fire. And he sees this, and they're shouting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as they're doing this, the foundation of the, of the thresholds of the temple are, are shaking. And this is what drives Isaiah to say in verse 5, Woe is me, I'm ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And this is where we get our picture of confession. This is a confession. Isaiah is confessing right here. Woe is me. I am completely undone. I am ruined. I am, literally the word is disintegrated. I am apart piece by piece. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Now here's our question. What drives Isaiah to focus on being a man of unclean lips. I mean, this is the first time we really hear Isaiah speak. Doesn't seem like such a bad guy. God calls him out to be a prophet. Typically, God doesn't call people who are, you know, over there shooting dice around the corner with the other, you know, Goldberg and John Steen and those guys are back in the back there. God doesn't pick those people. He picks some guys like a farmer or people to be a prophet, right? So he's not in the middle of like some massive sin. So he said, what's wrong with Isaiah here? And why would he say... I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm with a bunch of people of unclean lips, right? So we try to think about things. What is that? I don't know. I guess all people have unclean lips, and so we start going to the New Testament trying to find this stuff. Well, why don't we just stick right here? Because the text will tell us why he says this. Because he's shocked when he sees what he sees. And he sees these burning angels flying above him, calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But here's what I want you to see. They are not saying this to God. They are not proclaiming to God how holy he is. They are not, in essence, worshiping. They're not. Look at what they're saying in verse 3. They're not calling out to God. They're crying out one to another. These are the seraphim having a conversation. And they are booming it out with this seraphim kind of voice. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth. Yeah, but have you heard? I don't think you've heard. The Lord is holy. He's amazing. Holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Yes, but you guys don't even know what you're talking about because the Lord is holy. He's holy. He's holy. And it's going back and forth in some kind of a big pep rally with these angels going back and forth, flying around. They're having to cover their ears partially maybe because it's so loud. 
and they are screaming one to another about the holiness of God and that the whole earth is filled with his glory and it's so much so that the temple is shaking not because of God and not because of his transcendence or his eminence but because these seraphim can't keep quiet. Now here's Isaiah saying, wow, these beings who are so much infinitely more holy, more separate, more righteous than I are acting quite a bit more humble than I am. Why? Because they can't keep quiet about who the Lord is. What have I been saying? I guess I'm a man of unclean lips. Why? Because they're silent. They're not saying a word. And the people I live in, they are equally as silent. Read chapter 1 when God says, I hate your sacrifices. I hate your new moons. I hate your temple worship. Why? Because you are not considering me at all. You're going through the ritual. I'm a man of unclean lips. I've seen the Lord. And I understand now. I'm just sitting here not making anything about it. Yet I should be doing 24-7. This is amazing. And I'm not saying a word. So it brings him to confession to say, let me first understand who I am. Which is not, uh, I'm a man who's not amazed with who God is. At all. Let me just read to you just a quote that really kind of hit me from Richard Baxter. He writes this in the Reformed Pastor. Alas, it is the common danger and calamity of the church to have unregenerate and inexperienced pastors and to have so many men become preachers before they are Christians who are sanctified by dedication to the altar as the priests of God before they are sanctified by hearty dedication as the disciples of Christ. And so to worship an unknown God and to preach an unknown Christ, to pray through an unknown spirit, to recommend a state of holiness and communion with God and a glory and a happiness which are all unknown and like to be unknown forever. This is frightening. The idea of going through, I'm a Christian without really knowing what a Christian is. Now, I'm not talking about intellectually knowing. I'm talking about knowing Christ. Like Paul said, I give everything. It's all scubalon to Give it up to know him. Just, I want to know him. Even if it means the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. If he's there in the middle of that, that's where I'm going. I'm going right there. I've had many cases where I have to confess to the Lord, where I've been with people on an airplane. Airplanes, I'm horrible on an airplane. I've had guys and I just, I kind of have the don't bother me sign, you know. I'm, I'm making a sermon or I'm doing something or I'm tired and somebody got engaged in a conversation, so I really felt compelled to talk to him, and I did. And, and, and he was a German guy going to university here in the States, and he was kind of agnostic atheist, one of those kind of... And I explained to him much of the content, who Christ is, and, you know, once you get a little bit to doctrine around Christ, then, then either they get angry or then they get the eyes glaze over and you, all that kind of stuff goes on. And so it was another one of those unproductive conversations with a person who was definitely, the Spirit's not working and all that. And as I got done, I, I'm reading this and reading the passage and all this kind of stuff. And I really understand, you know what, but I never showed him how much I really want to know Christ. 
I didn't show him that. I explained Christ. I defined Christ. I explained doctrines. I explained the consequences of your decisions, all those kinds of things. But did he see in my eyes a pursuit? No. That's not what I was talking about. I was talking about you need information. Not, oh man, this is amazing. This is unbelievable. He's Lord of the universe. You don't like that? You don't get it? Well, I'm sorry. But that didn't change what I think. That'll change how people respond to you, by the way. Confession is understanding who you are and who God is with that. Secondly, verses 6 to 8. Are you marked by a life of repentance is where we're going. First was confession like Isaiah confessed here. Before he can be used to call, he had to get his confession, kind of got him right in line. But that's not where it ends. It doesn't end with, Lord, you know, forgive me this. It's a life of repentance. Because that's what follows confession, verses 6 to 8. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with the burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. Stop there for a second. Question. I got a burning one here. Okay, the on-fire angel. Literally on flame, like a superhero. You know, there he is. Flying around, screaming out about God's holiness, comes down to the altar, and then you know what he does? This is kind of baffling here. He doesn't pick up a coal. You'd think he could, right? On fire, burning, pick up the coal. He doesn't do that. He first gets a set of tongs. Like a good South African knows how to do a bride just right, you know. That's what we say for barbecue over there, you know. It's a bunch of men standing around the fire fighting over who gets to have the tongs and the thing. Well, here comes this angel, and he grabs a set of tongs. And he's got the tongs, and he picks up the coal. So our question is, why does the seraphim need to use tongs? He's on fire, right? Well, obviously, it's not the heat, is it? Can't be the heat. But he can't touch it. Can't touch it. Well, to answer the question, we have to say, what's usually on an altar? Coals. But what specifically is on an altar? Sacrifice. There is a sacrifice in the temple that is on there, and specifically, like Isaiah, like in Genesis 22, to offer Isaiah or offer Isaac, Abraham offered Isaac as a burnt offering. Because that's what it's, that's why you have coals, because it's a burnt offering, which is a pleasing aroma to God. So you kill whatever's on there, and then it goes on fire. It's burned up. So this is from the sacrifice on the altar with the coals, and the seraphim says, "Let me get some tongs." And I'm going to take those tongs. And then what he does with them is he touches the mouth, the place of the iniquity. And said, behold, your sin is removed. Now, what would cause coals to remove the sin in taking the sin? An acceptable sacrifice. The seraphim knew that there was an acceptable sacrifice there. Now, we can appeal to the John chapter 12 where the Apostle John writes about this very event and says that Isaiah saw Jesus Christ there in this kind of a mystery of the 
both the Father and the Son right here. And there's a sap, an acceptable sacrifice that the seraphim takes, but can't touch. He's not ready to touch that. He's not holy enough to touch that coal, but he takes it and removes the sin through this coal right here. Atonement is in picture right here. The atonement of Isaiah's sin, the covering of his sin, taking away, removal, and there it is. He is now free from this burden of being separated from his God. And he hears the voice of the Lord. The Lord responds here. Who am I? Who, or who will go for us? In both this and in the confession, we see first the Lord being seen and then Isaiah's response. Now here we see the Lord saying something, Isaiah responding. Who will go for us? One simple, word, one simple phrase right here. Then I said, here am I, send me. That's where these three questions are coming from, by the way. The three then I saids right here in the passage. Makes it pretty easy. Then I said, here am I, send me. And this is a picture of repentance. Notice his urgency right here. Who will go? Who will go for us? And right away, he's up there. Me, me, me. The seraph, get, could you guys move, please? Can you get away? He can't see me. Me, me, I'll be your guy. I'm your guy. Not these guys, they're flying around. I'll be the guy. I mean, he, he's so anxious, he wants to get the Lord's attention here. Send me. A couple of interesting pictures here is that Isaiah never asked when, he never asked where, and he never asked for what. He never asked, where are we going? And he never asked, what am I going to do? He said, I'm going to do it. You see, that is true repentance. You know, compare that to Moses when God called Moses. Wilderness out of the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. The Lord sends Moses, and he says, I want you to go back to Pharaoh. Verse 11, Moses says, well, who am I to do this? I mean, I'm just Moses. I don't know that I really want. I, I'm not your guy. So verse 12, the Lord says, I'll be with you. I will be with you. So chapter 4, verse 1, Moses, well, suppose they won't listen to me. Eh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of issues here. Suppose they won't listen to me. Chapter 4, verse 10, Moses says, Oh, you know what? I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. I, I really can't speak. Verse 11, who made man's mouth? Didn't I make your mouth, Moses? Finally, in verse 13, Moses says, You know what? After all the fact, appreciate the discussion. Send somebody else. Could you send somebody else? That might be a good thing. So the Lord's anger burned against Moses. That is not what's in view here, is it? Without even knowing what the command is, what the call is, where am I going? He says, I'm your guy. Because, see, true repentance has no expectation of outcome whatsoever. No expectation of outcome. It just means you go because it's the Lord. This is the Lord, a chance to do the Lord's work that's so clear, and he's telling it to you, and you I'll be with you right there. Wow, this, there's no greater place I'd want to be than knowing the Lord wants to be with me right here. And you know, Isaiah was not called to preach to unreached peoples, was he? He was called to preach to his people right there in the neighborhood. People who knew him. Repentance is not knowing what God's going to do with it when you repent. 
Repentance is like Joel chapter 2, verse 14. Who knows whether the Lord will turn and give us a blessing? He might not, or he might. It doesn't matter. You repent. Now, let me help you with this. Because there's a big state of confusion in Christianity today. Big state of confusion. And it needs to be cleared up. The world has somewhat hijacked the term repentance. And Christianity has embraced it this way now. And so it's kind of a negative word. Why? Because you can't really get a, a clear picture of repentance without getting some guy on TV, repent, repent, repent or else. Right? That's the picture of repentance. So it's this painful thing Christians have to do, and we got to tell people, repent. I know it's kind of a tough thing, but repent because I'm looking down on you. It's, it's a looking down, a judgmental word, that kind of thing. That's a lie. That is a lie. Don't believe that. That's confession. Confession is confess, confess, which means say the same thing the Lord is saying about this. That's confession, to say the same thing. But repentance, get this, mark this down. Repentance is running hard and fast over that which you love most. That's repentance. It's turning from what you're doing, continually turning from what you're doing, to turn back to what you love most and run harder and faster at it. That's repentance. You do it when you drive down the highway. You have to keep turning your steering wheel a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right as you go. Why? Because your car needs to be adjusted and repenting back on the lane. Here's the picture. Back in 1980, I was in a Sunday school class, sitting there, living in my parents' house, and I looked out the window, and this little blonde girl kind of ran across the... Hey, when I say little blonde girl, little blonde 20-year-old. Ran across, and I looked at her, and I began my plans of repentance at that point. And I began repenting to her until we married in 1982, and I have been repenting ever since. Because I need to continually repent to turn to her and run after her, which I love most, continually. And part of that repentance is telling all the other girls, I'm sorry, we're done. There's no more. There's no other girls. There's this one. And I will continually run after her. That is repentance. So folks, Christians should say, can I, can I repent today? Because that's kind of fun. <laughs> we are running hard and fast over that which we love most. That's what we see here. That is Repentance. Christians being called is marked by saying, let me get rid of the burdens through confession. Be transparent with the Lord. Understand who he is. Now you are free to run hard and fast after him. That's a whole different perspective. Thirdly, you know that, I'm going to try as best I can in the limited time we have left to now cover verses 9 to 13. So we've covered there is a Life of, are you marked by a life of confession? A life of compassion? I mean, a life of uh, repentance? And it's being ready for ministry. Let me make this other, one last point on repentance, by the way. When you are repenting, you are ready for any ministry. You can do anything that God says, oh, could you handle this one thing for me? Absolutely. Why? Because you are running hard and fast after God 
in your heart and your joy. And God says, you can lead anybody. Because why? You're leading them all to me. You're moving fast toward me. You're ready for ministry. It's when you're not repenting and you're not having that idea of repentance that God says, we got to get a crowbar here to kind of get you out to get to do something because you're not real excited about who I am. So repentance is one of those things, beloved, that actually says we can make a, an impact here in Fullerton. We can make an impact in our spheres of influence because we are busy repenting to God I'm excited to have people see that I'm going hard and fast after God, not to do things for God. Very different. But lastly, verses 9 to 13, the passage everybody runs away from. Why? Because it's the most difficult sermon you could could hear. He says, this is what I want you to do, Isaiah, verse 9. Go and tell this people, your people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on uh, looking, but do not understand. And I want you, Isaiah, get this in verse 10, that render the hearts, that's a command by God to Isaiah that says, I want you, Isaiah, to cause the hearts of this people to be insensitive, cause their ears to be dull, cause their eyes to be dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. You, I want you to go and shut them down. How's that for a sermon? Oh, man. That's tough. I'm going to judge Israel right now. That's the sermon. But here's Isaiah's response, verse 11. Then I said, Lord, how long? How long? Which tells us something. When you ask how long, it means you understand there's an end to it. You don't say how long thinking it's going to be forever. Or once off and there's no more Israel. How long says there's a time and we're done. That means Isaiah knows that God's going to be with Israel still. How long says the pain will be lessened? How long says there's going to be a time of great blessing? And it also says, I'm not unwilling to preach this. There's no fight. How long? I know you are compassionate, which means, are you marked with a life of compassion? Isaiah's got compassion here for the people. I know that God has compassion for the people. But look at what God says in verses 11 to 13. Until cities are devastated without inhabitant, houses are without people, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So we're thinking, wow, okay, that's tough. He's going to start wiping them out. But look at verse 13. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it. 10% are going to survive. 10%. But that 10% will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. I'm going to take the 10% and grind it to powder. Ah, man. And the holy seed will be a stump. This is God saying, I'm going to grind it to powder, but there will be a seed. There will be a stump. This can either easily, just without getting into all the technical aspects of it, but he could be pointing right here to Christ or the remnant of believers who are in Christ. Either way, those who become the holy seed. Because why? Israel right now is not the holy seed. Israel right now is having nothing to do with God. So Israel right now is going to be decimated, crushed out. Because there is going to be Israel coming. It's coming. 
That's the sermon. And he's saying, Lord, how long? Now, this is what I want you to see right here. This is kind of the thrust of it. Just know if you're marked by heart of compassion. This is why we preach chapter 6. If you give me five more minutes here, if I can do it in five minutes. But here's the connection. Chapter 7. Chapter 7. That's not some obscure story in Isaiah that comes next. It's tied right to this sermon that he tells Isaiah, I want you to preach this. I says, okay, how long? Well, I'll tell you how long until it's complete. Okay. So we see in chapter 7, verse 1, now it comes about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham. So we're now a grandson down the path. So it's several decades later that here is King Ahaz. And he hears in verse 2 that two countries are going up against him, northern Israel and the king of Syria, right now where ISIS is. All those guys in northern Israel joined together and were coming down, making war against Judah, but cannot conquer it. What's fascinating about that is God is the one who's actually sending them. We learn from 2 Kings. God's sending these two enemies down there and they are hammering Judah. And King Ahaz is shaking, it says in verse 2, like the trees as the forest shake with the wind. He's afraid. You read the battles in 2 Chronicles and you find out that they took away 200,000 people in one battle as slaves. So that's a pretty bad deal. They're getting just... It's worse than what we see in the news today. That's what's going on in Ahaz's time. And so the Lord says to Isaiah in verse 3, Go now and meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Jashub, whose name means a remnant will return. Kind of an interesting sign that's there. And go out there and talk to him and say this, verse 4, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. Basically, these two cigarette butts. That's what he says. Don't be afraid of them. Even though God's the one sending them, he said, don't be afraid of them. Because they're nobody. And he says two words. He says, take care and be calm. The Hebrew rendering of that really means put your hands in your pockets and don't touch anything. Or you could paraphrase it like this in more of the paraphrased versions. Three words. God would say, I got this. I got this. Ahaz, do not try to get yourself out of this. I've got it. They are cigarette butts here. And he explains that these enemies will not stand at all. Verses 7 to 9. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass, whatever their plan is. And then he ends it in verse 9 with this. If you will not believe, though, you will surely not last. You better do what I'm saying here, Ahaz. Put your hands in your pockets. Don't do anything. Because I'm going to take care of it. All you have to do is trust. Trust me. And then we get 10 to 13. Here it is, right here. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep in Sheol, as high as heaven. This is the only guy in Scripture where God gave him the keys to the universe and said, You drive. 
This is the only man in Scripture where God says, you can ask me the sign and I will do it. That's pretty intense. As high as heaven, as low as Sheol, whatever it is, I will do it. You want a million-man army? Done. You want to be the wealthiest man on earth? Done. You want immortality? I'll give it to you because I said I would. He gave Ahaz the ability to tell God anything he wanted. That's what he says. You think, is that a risk? I mean, why would God do that? And he gave it to the worst possible person he could give it to. Ahaz was the guy who put his babies in the fire. Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. He says, no, I won't do that. I won't do what you're asking. So God says through Ahaz, or through Isaiah, listen now, house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you'll also try patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here it is. Behold, a virgin will give child and bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. How much more specific can you get in terms of redemptive message? Because everybody's looking for the second Samuel 7 guy. Who is the Davidic covenant guy? Who is the one who's going to be raised up, son of David? That's why he says in verse, tw- verse 13, O house of David, not Ahaz. House of David who's looking for the greater David coming. You're wanting him. I'm going to tell you, here's the sign. And he's, a virgin is going to give birth to that child and he's going to call his name Emmanuel. I'll give you that sign. The clearest picture of God's redemptive message in the Old Testament right here to the wickedest man who seeing will not see, hearing will not hear because his heart is thick with fat and will be completely insensitive and will not listen. And what does God do? Pursues him with the message and makes the message more and more simple to his ears to hear all the way until his death. Why? Because Ahaz has already chosen to throw his lot in with the Assyrians to deliver him. I don't need God. I got a plan. The Assyrians are going to deliver me. I don't want God because God comes with strings attached. This is the sermon that God told Isaiah to preach. You preach what I tell you and they will not listen and you keep preaching it. What's the picture? Catch this statement now. I'm probably, I try to say it as clear as I can. Sometimes I get my words mixed up. But God chases those unbelievers, and I'll say who, who appear to be unelect. Let's call it that way. Even when they show themselves to not be elect and eventually jump with both feet right into hell. And God chases them all the way to the edge of the cliff with a redemptive message. God does not say, well, they're not elect, so let them go. Let's focus on the redeemed. Let's focus on the elect. Much like what churches can do today. They've proven themselves to be enemies of the church, non-elect. I understand. We focus on those who respond. God's heart is to chase those who do not respond and continue to make the message simpler and simpler and simpler until they might eventually jump off the cliff. And then God goes and finds another one and chases him with the message, not with judgment. He chases them 
with a sermon. Even when they reject it. So God says, give them another sermon. Give them another sermon. They might completely shut it off, but give them another sermon. That is a heart of compassion. Do you have that heart here? Do you have that heart of compassion? Just let me give you this picture to close with. Baptized when I was eight. God doing apparently nothing in my life as I'm living hypocritically, ungodly, didn't even have a Bible in my house as I'm running a company and all of that, didn't want to go to church. And the Lord ordained various circumstances in our life to bring us to a church. I didn't want to go. I mean, Sunday morning, that's when all the good TV shows are on and all that kind of stuff. And, you, you know, and I like to work. I go to church. What's there? A bunch of people singing and you listen to a guy and all that. And I met people at this church. We went once, actually. As the story goes, my wife and I went to a church in 1997 because a neighbor kept hitting us. You got to come to our church. Got to come to our church. The preacher is going to be amazing. He's an awesome preacher. Finally, you say, okay, we're going to go. So we go. The preacher wasn't there that Sunday. Yeah. And it was Missionary Sunday. Guy from Africa. Oh, boy. In my career where I was at and growing up in a Baptist church, I believed that pastors were guys who couldn't get jobs. And missionaries were guys who couldn't even be pastors. That was my view. So now we got some old mission guy up here with stuff from Africa. And it was such a bad day, my wife and I swore an oath with each other that we would never go back to that church again, ever. We're never coming back. We shook hands. Literally. So we leave. This poor, this, this young housewife, she was devastated. You know, I tried my neighbors and the thing just flopped, you know. I can never go back. We're like, thank you, thank you. We're, we're busy like the next 52 weeks in a row. So we're busy. <laughs> Not going to happen. A year later, almost to the day, the Lord ordained through a whole set of pretty supernatural circumstances that we found ourselves back in that church despite our oath. Not, not going willingly. I wasn't willingly going. I had to go there. Listening to the preaching of God's word. There it is. But I'm like, ah, whatever. And right then during the preaching, got saved just like that. Holy Spirit coming in, words coming alive, and boom! I mean, like that, I am looking at the Lord, and I am seeing very clearly, I've been a hypocrite for these many years, and I'm understanding that I've, I've been rejecting him very clearly, playing him for a fool, and him looking at me saying, the bus is leaving. Now, you can get on it, or you can stay off, but it's not coming back. This is it, right here. I saw one of those moments. In my head, there was all kinds of, you know, the feeling and all the stuff was going on that you, you, we could have a, you know, dancing, praise about all that, but I knew right then. It was like, Lord, okay, I said, I'm in. My wife had already been saved for about three weeks, and I didn't know it. And so I, I just said, I'm in, because I know. I'm looking at the Lord here. But what does this mean? It means I've got to go to church now, not just here. We've got to come back tonight. We've got to come back tonight, and then we've got Wednesdays. We've got all kinds of, oh, 
And I knew that's what that meant. And I said, I'm in, I'm going to do it. And I hate every moment of it, but I'm going to do it. Literally, I, I mean, I hate it. I mean, this is going to be horrible, but we're going to do it. Why? Because it's the Lord. He's right there. You're not going to see it. There he is. It was that quick. And so we became 24-7 people, not, well, we'll come back tonight kind of people because it's whatever the pastor wants. I'm now running a company, but now my life is now Sundays. Here's the punchline. For that year, I found out later when I was going to Africa, on my way to Africa, I found out about one of the people who I had met there. Oh, yeah, David, I remember you guys, yeah, it was interesting people. We, I remember when you first came in and the, and the gal invited you. And I, Well, that whole year, their Sunday school class prayed for us by name for the year. And they never stopped. And it's one of those, oh, yeah, my neighbor again. How's he doing? Is he responding? No, no, I can't go over there. Man, those guys, they have nothing to do with church. I think. But that's what, what was their name again? Oh, the Beakleys. Okay, okay. remember the Beakleys in prayer. Remember, oh, you take them, y'all take them. Beakleys in prayer. Okay, the Lord, pray for the Beakleys in prayer because it was one of those deals, right? I'm one of those guys. Because one Sunday, just like that, just like that, it all came together, even though I had the information already and I knew all that. But I saw him high and lifted up. And the train filled the temple, and it was like, oh my. And from that point on, there's been an understanding of confession, repentance, and compassion, and I'm still learning those things. And it means you actually pray for people when they don't respond, and you keep going. And you keep preaching when they don't respond. Why? Because there's a compassionate God out there that says, you don't understand who I am. When we have this, we understand what being called is. Just like Isaiah did, having to deal with that. 